Chaubense. What does that even mean? I don't know. Go make a podcast about it, will ya? You know what? I think I will. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of why we're here. And I'm like, just remembering that line, I'm like, oh my god, am I going to start? This episode, guys, is going to be a game of how long can Carter go without uh, getting a little choked up? The answer is not very long, The answer my is approximately 41 seconds. With like about <laughs> 10 of those seconds being set up. Welcome to the Disney desk, everyone. I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. And welcome to another episode of a series I don't think we've done in a while. Uh, it's a Sydney's Never Seen. Yeah. I think the last thing I had never seen was Over the Garden Wall. Really? Have we done that many Carter's Never Seen's? Oh, no, Zootopia. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. I had never seen Zootopia. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think, yeah, I think that was the last one we've officially done. Unless you count yeah. Owl House, which we I think we, we've done so many, like, that we have mutually never seen. <laughs> so maybe that's right. just, like, what's what's overlapping there. Yeah, as someone pedantic about branding, I'm like, well, the Owl House episode is called Carter Explains Owl House, so we can't really count that one. That wasn't a Sydney's Never Seen? It technically was, but we decided to call it something else. Ugh. You Never know. mind. We have, like, seven miniseries. I don't know, again, I don't know why we're, like, doing so much shtick to start the episode. I really want to talk about this. That's our thing. That, that's the pattern. That's that's what people come for, the beginning shtick, before we even tell them what we're going to talk about today. Anyway, yeah. today's episode of the Disney Desk is going to be uh, Sid's Never Seen, and this week I've never seen the Pixar film Luca. Yes, the... Um... It, the Pixar computer animated film, which was released straight to Disney+, Plus, which we will talk about, uh, right. June 18th, 2021. So it's basically the anniversary of it coming out. Oh, uh, yeah. Directed by Enrico Casarosa. It is the story of a pair of um, young sea monsters who decide to spend their summer in the At idyllic Italian port city Porto Rosso. And they get into hijinks, they eat pasta, and they learn a lot about themselves. Yeah. I don't know why I decided to also have this episode be my, like, professional synopsis. Yeah, I don't voice. know either, but it's, it's you know, if if not now, that would have happened in a couple minutes, so. Right. Good to get it over um, without a front. This is a patron's choice episode. Yeah, we have too many freaking labels on this show. This, yeah. is, a, <laughs> this is a patron's choice episode, um... So we need to we need to have a, a little chat, shall we? So before we jump into anything yes. fun, we have some homework to take care of. First of all, on www.patreon.com slash Disney Desk, where you can subscribe and be able to vote on an episode an episode that we cover each month. This month, um, we gave our patrons uh three choices and they actually we're we need at least one more person to join Patreon because we have an even number of patrons, which means that the votes often, like sometimes they come out 50-50. Hopefully we can fix that. But anyway, unfortunately this month right. our patrons chose Unfortunately. between, well, because cause we got to do this now. Like, you know. Then I mean, yeah, but like, I mean, we could play as the tiebreakers, everyone. I but already it's not fun. We could have just picked the episode then. I already did in one per 
I already did, and one person didn't vote this month, and they missed the deadline. Anyway, all this to say that, like, we gave them the choice between doing an LGBTQ-themed episode where we were going to talk about the the representation or lack thereof or, or what have you within Disney films, television, content, that sort of broad word, um, and a bunch of other, like, two other options, one of which was this episode, Since Never Seen Luca. So they were tied between the LGBTQ episode and Luca. And so we just wanted to chat for a moment because it is Pride Month. And while that yes. was a noble idea on our part to include... In, in, include a conversation about LGBTQ plus issues. While we're not shy about speaking on those issues, neither of us really cleanly or even mostly fit into that sort of category. Enough where we would feel even comfortable dissecting it, like in depth issues right. pertaining LGBTQ topics um we just don't feel that that as as much as we would we want and we intend to use our platform to extend our support and love um for for people who identify as such we just don't we're not the people to really be saying and I think I mentioned this in the last episode I'll never be able to say like what's good for gay people and what's not do you know what I mean Right. And as we were kind of deciding what to do with this episode, I do think Luca presented a sort of compromise opportunity, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Sort of an opportunity to talk about these topics in a way that I feel like we can be a little more versed in and we do have a little bit of luxury, you know, like we have at least a little more authority to talk about because Correct. while Luca is not inherently an LGBTQ themed movie, it does have a lot of undertones and it does have a lot of ideas that a lot of people in that community have like pointed to as potential representation. Yeah. And I do think that is a topic we can talk about with Disney sort of the interesting relationship Disney has with LGBTQ themes and like how that community, why that community has such a presence with Disney because mm. you know, Disney like, Disney Pride is kind of a big deal. It is, like, an event. I have LGBTQ friends who go make a point to go to the parks during Pride who, like, mm. you know, have the merch. Like, right. you know, like, it, it, like obviously, there was the complete calamity that was the Don't Say Gay Bill and Chepik um, shoving both feet so far up his mouth they came out the other end. And their current, um, you know, their current battles with Florida. It's like, this isn't necessarily new for them in terms of, like, definitely this weird relationship they have with wanting to appeal to that demographic but maybe not necessarily no representing that demographic in a yeah in an explicit like literal way if right. that makes sense yes that's that's probably the best way to put it um is that they're yeah. they're excellent at at um illustrating it in the most abstract ways and hoping that the audience can like wink wink nudge nudge catch it yeah, and, like, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit as we progress into the episode, because that also ties in with a lot of film history in a way that, right. like, you know, we can actually talk about. But, yeah, it, this felt like an opportunity to kind of, like, do something for Pride Month that doesn't 
have us speaking for groups that aren't not necessarily us. Correct. Yes. Um, and also just talk about a movie I love that's kind of yeah. the perfect summer movie. It is a perfect summer movie. Um, and we can't wait to get into that. But in the meantime... Happy Pride to everyone who happy Pride, celebrates. Everyone. Happy Happy Pride, everybody. Um, it's always an exciting month, and we hope that uh, you're living life and enjoying yourself as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And before we dive in, it is time for... Ha, dive. <laughs> um, before we start, it is time for another Internet Minute. <laughs> All right, Sydney, what is your Internet Minute this week? Okay, so um, this will be slightly different for me because I don't really have, like, a specific source from Twitter or the Internet or, or like, a screenshot of anything. We all know how much I love my screenshots. Um, I just want to talk about Secret Invasion, the mm -hmm. straight-to-Disney+. Plus. Isn't that... Isn't that a crazy thing to say, straight to Disney Plus? Remember in the days well, yeah. when we used to say things were straight to DVD? And that was like yes. a bad label to have? Well, yes, Disney knows that's a bad label, so that's why they call them yeah. Disney Plus Originals. What? Oh my gosh. I never even put that together. Ugh. I feel cheated. Anyway, because... Because that's not even special at all. But anyway, we don't need to get into that. Let's get into this whole secret invasion thing, which, as of recording this, came out, what, 24 hours ago? Uh, yeah, a little more, a little less. About, yeah. Um, so it's brand new, and I want to talk about it today because I have, like, I am genuinely surprised at its existence slash presence slash, like, packaging and delivery. Um, because, like, I don't know, coming, like, okay, yes, I understand that so much about the order of things with Marvel films has changed since and because of the pandemic. However, I don't know, I, I still have, like, an expectation of prestige with, like, quote-unquote Avengers films or, or Marvel or, or any Marvel film. Um, right, that's something you've talked about before. Even if it's coming to straight to Disney Plus or it's in a quote-unquote original. Like, there have been things that have premiered on Disney Plus and have felt a little more special in nature. And mm -hmm. I am totally missing that. Especially because we're talking about the Secret Invasion event, which is, it's up there with the Infinity event, like, in in right. Marvel lore, the Secret Invasion is a very important event that is, like, on the level of Infinity War and Endgame, and, like, so, so this feels so confusing to me, like, why, not only, like, okay, they, they chose to go to the Disney Plus route fine but i have seen next to no i think i've seen one trailer for this that i feel like the mm. marketing on this is extremely minimal and 
I other than Samuel L. Jackson, I couldn't tell you who's in it. And Colby, I can't remember. Smolders. 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 I um. At least that's what I call, say. Right. I don't. Smolders. I guess, yeah. Smunders. Smuckers. No, I don't know. No. Um. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Smolders. I think it's Smolders. Anyway, um, I don't, I don't know a damn thing about this movie, and f- for a Marvel fan such as myself, like, that's alarming to me. So, I just thought we'd talk about, like, what's going on here? What, what What's going on here? I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack there. I agree with you. Like, I knew next to nothing. I literally forgot it came out Wednesday. And it is so funny that all these people have been like, Marvel needs to slow it down. Less stuff, less stuff. But it does have this object permanence thing where it's like, if I'm not getting something new every three months, like basically every season, as we were like when the machine really got turned back on starting mm-hmm. with Black Widow, like it's just gone from my reality. Like I'm like, wait, I gotta go, there's a Marvel thing I gotta go do? Okay. Yeah. Um, like, as we were saying before we started recording, any of these that are like six episodes, I'm like, okay, this was a movie at some point, wasn't it? At some point, this was a script you were working on. And then when, like, the early Chepik era... Wait, is like, this a series? Disney... Mm-hmm. It's not even a movie? This this is a series? No. Oh. Yeah, no. Okay, that... No, puts... it's not, like, a special presentation. That puts a lot into context for me, because I... Now I, I understand this a lot better, because I thought this was a film. Really? Well, see, that's the problem. They're not... Like, the way they're showing the ads, it looks like a film. But instead, they're calling it a six-episode six event series. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, time. Prestige TV can go die in a ditch. I'm so tired of Prestige TV. Make movies yeah. again. I'm right. so tired of this. Right. Like, it, it, how many things have actually earned this title? Um, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, because it's like early Disney Plus era was like, hey, we want to be like Netflix. Put as much stuff on here to get the stock price up as possible. And then, you know, a lot of companies are just doubling down because they realize they've been bought a bad bill of goods and, you know, sunk cost fallacies a thing. But also, like, I think a part of the problem is, like, it seems like a lot of the plot, like, if they actually show stuff, they would just be spoiling huge things. I've had one very, very big thing spoiled for me from the first episode, and I'm like, oh, wowie zowie, okay, so you really couldn't market any of this. Right. Also, on top of the fact that the source material, like, one of the smartest things Marvel's ever done is reframing the scrolls as, like, you know, shifty-eyed, shape-shifting heathens into, like, space refugees who use their shape-shifting to, like, hide from Survive. imperial yeah. power. Right. And now they're like, oh, nope, they're actually bad. Yeah, they're, like, they could be anywhere. They're, like, you know, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the secret, you know, they're the immigrants who are coming into your country getting ready to kill you. And it's like, yeah, right. I wouldn't want to market this either. Yeah. This, like... I don't know. They've done this before where, like, you know, Iron Man 3 had the Mandarin turn out to be, like, a false flag operation as sort of a way of, like, commenting on the problematic racial caricatures of the original Mandarin. But then they actually did the Mandarin, and they kind of had their cake and ate it, too, because it was actually a really cool character who kind of lampshaded the fact of, like, a Mandarin's an orange. Like, they really created, like, they really called me, like, they were terrified of a fruit, like a chicken dish. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this, I'm like, I don't know how you have that sort of middle ground with this. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's already a very, I'm already very tired of it. Right. Because also there was, 
the fiasco with the AI uh, title sequence, um, which at this point it's just become such noise. I don't even really have that much sophisticated to say about it other than, look, the fact that the director was the one who came out and said this is something they wanted to do. Like they saw AI art and thought, oh, this would fit the scrolls thing because it's like, you know, everything's a little off kilter and you don't know what you're seeing. Exactly, right. It's like, I do think a lot of us in the more like visual arts and written arts really need to appreciate like directors may not necessarily have our back on a lot of these fronts because AI doesn't directly take their jobs away. I got you, yeah. Like again, auteur theory and director's immunity have literally gotten people killed on film sets. I you have to be prepared that they might not be the most reliable allies in the, you know, yeah, battle against AI technology. Do you think do you think that Marvel will ever again in the future resemble like anything like it did you know in the before times? <laughs> I mean, you're talking to me in a particularly moody state, Sydney. Um so my gut says no because we've, you know, 2019's gone. We can't get back into the Garden of Eden. Damn you it. know, we can't we can't um, you know, crawl back into the womb or whatever. Like, you know, the, the paradise is gone. But I don't know. I Like, and this kind of ties into my internet minute, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, like, yeah, I just think the problem that all of these streaming platforms have gotten into now is, like, they've opened the box. Like, it's hard to convince people to come back to the theater. It's hard to, like, un, yeah. you know, so much of your stock prices and a lot of your jobs are tethered, anchored. Like, you literally wrapped an anchor around your waist and chucked it into the ocean. Like, you have to hope it doesn't drag you all the way down, so you just kind of have to commit. Like, it's too right. late to, like, back out of all of this now. And, you know, I mean, like, I don't even... You know, when I say, like, Marvel sort of returning to sort of the height of its glory, I don't even think we need the th the theaters to do that. I just want there to be, like less more special marvel content but i understand what you're trying to say of like no that this engine needs to continue to be cranked right yeah like when you've committed to this sort of like terminal capital capitalist attitude of like the line it's not just enough to keep stock prices high they have to be accelerating at a rate that's literally impossible like you just mm -hmm. can't stop you know, there's no gotcha. off on this train unless you accept that the industry is going to crash for a year or two, which right. should have been COVID, but instead that only emboldened the worst people in this industry. Like, I they're see. like, they are the ones who are trying to pretend it's still 2019, where it's like, oh, you know, 10, 10 to 15 films a year are going to make a billion dollars, you know, more money, more. We can just do this forever. And it's like, well, no, we couldn't do this forever. And right. now we really can't do it forever. But my God, you're going to keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, what's your internet minute? Well, mine ties into that. So The Wrap recently reported, um, you know, one of the trades, um, that Marvel Studios is planning to skip Comic-Con's Hall H this year. Hall H tends to be, is like the biggest mm. hall they have. That's where they tend to make big announcements and big, like, yeah. look at all the projects. It's and coming. I... This is the first time they're going to not have a Hall H segment in a while. 
like, the last time they were at Hall H is when they announced the uh, Phase 5 and 6 lineup. That's when they announced Fantastic Four, Kang Dynasty, Secret Wars, Blade. Like, a lot of the really big stuff. Like, basically, their whole schedule lineup was announced there. Um, Daredevil coming back. Mm. And so, at one point, to bring y'all a little more inside baseball is, at one point, we were discussing the possibility of doing an episode where we made bold predictions for the next couple years of Disney and extended companies. And we ended up not doing that because it's like, eh, it's a little esoteric, you know, like... People want to listen. Do we have enough stuff for that? But the one that got me interested in it is my bold prediction for Marvel is the next time they have like a Kevin Feige in front of like a projector thing, they're basically going to announce a brand new slate for phase five and phase six. Like, I think, I, I think it's a number of factors. I think it's just the internet discourse getting so overwhelmed with negativity that yeah. it's basically become a Last Jedi thing, where it's like, oh, now you're not even allowed to say these things are kind of good. Though I have seen a rise yeah. in pro-Eternals talk. I've seen a rise in pro-Eternals you know? talk, and I'm going to cling to that. Yeah, okay. like, there, like there's a growing... Yeah, again, like once the internet grabs the microphone and starts screaming a certain opinion, it's hard to overcome that. Right. Um, you know, combined with the fact that, Ken, you know, the actor who plays Kang, who you've kind of built a disproportionate amount of this around, in a way you really haven't before... Yeah. In a way that, you know, you usually gave yourself enough off-ramps or enough branching paths where it's like, oh, right. well, people don't like this. We can just do a different thing. Again, yeah, no if biggie. Hulk had, yeah, again, if Hulk had made more money, the leader probably would have been the first Avengers villain, not Loki. Um, oh. Like, yeah, again, you gave, or Red Skull. You gave yourself enough branches that you could do something. But you pointedly chose not to do that for Phase 5 and Phase 6. And now you're kind of stuck where you need to recast or recalibrate. And I think the instinct is, why don't we just recalibrate? On top of the fact that, you know, the multiverse angle, like committing so much to the multiverse angle and then finding, like, maybe that's not as fruitful as we thought it was. Right. Like, they might just decide to go in a completely different direction. Um, I don't, you know... Yeah, like, I, I feel like I recently saw a lineup online. I don't know. It Sometimes I feel like some of these are a little unreputable. Somebody's just, like, typing mm-hmm. these up. Um, I, I honestly would wish for what you're talking about. Like, I kind of wish for, like, a complete reslate. I kind of... I, I feel so convoluted with where Marvel is, like, headed right now that I that I would actually feel the most relieved if we, like, like if, if Secret Invasion was just, like, a punctuation point and we just, like, started from scratch. Right. Which, like, because of its hyping as an event series might give you the opportunity. Yeah. Just because it's, like, you know, like, that gives you a reset on the ground level where you're going to find out who's a scroll, who's not, like, Nick mm-hmm. Fury's going to be reestablished. And then you have the Marvels to serve as, like, a cosmic reset. Oh, and that's, yeah. like, the very last of, like, the hard COVID era. Where it's like, right. yeah, these things are exhausting to make right now. Like, mm-hmm. it is not fun to be on these sets. It is not fun to figure out how to make this work. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, I think that just gives you an opportunity to, after that, just say, okay, this was phase five and phase six. It was like table setting. It was reimagining, you know, it was establishing new teams, new sort of angles, new heroes. Right. 
bringing in a new young generation of heroes, and I don't know. I keep, if I was going to guess, like, why not just call it, like, the Dimension Saga? Because, again, I like that this phase, phase four and phase five are, like, God, there, you know, we saved the universe from Thanos, but there are so many, like, secret what worlds the we other didn't ones? know about. Yeah. Where it's, like, there's a dimension of genies who at any point can just break out and cover <laughs> this entire world in light. There's, yep. like, there's the land, realm of the Celestials who we can't even, like, how the fuck are we even going to kill one of those things? Right. There's, there's, like, all the gods just hang out somewhere now. Zeus is just running, like, a sex parlor. Right. Um like, wait, like, what are we going to do for any of these things? Like, and maybe do something around a nihilist in the negative zone or something. I don't know. Oh. There's a lot of, yeah, I think, I think we're going to see some big changes and it might just be for the best. Cause I think like, we got to get the hype back up. We got to like yeah. kind of recalibrate a bit. Exactly. And now back to your regular scheduled programming. <laughs> So, I wanted to do this episode for a number of reasons. Um, like I said, it is a film I've been trying to get Sydney to watch for forever now. Um, it is right. kind of the perfect summer movie. It is the most summery thing Pixar or Disney has done in God knows how long. Um, right. It's, like, inherently about summer. Um, like we said, it dabbles in LGBTQ themes in a way that I think is very interesting to talk about the Disney company as a whole. But also because I have gotten very, very frustrated with the narrative around Pixar as Elemental has come out. And mm. I'm committing to seeing Elemental this coming week so I can talk about it on the podcast in some way, shape, or form. I've decided I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to support it. You know, going to support it. Um, okay. But anyway, like people talk about like, oh, Pixar's in a slump. And I'm like, what in God's name are you talking about? Back to back to back, they released Soul, Luca, and Turning Red. Arguably, any three of those films you could put in your top five Pixar, and I'm like, yes. That's yeah, sensible. you're right. Yeah. That's correct. Um, and it's very frustrating that because of poor management from, like, the Walt Disney Company, and I know people are like, oh, stop blaming Chepik for everything. He isn't there anymore. And it's like, yeah, well, you made these well, decisions. Right. Yeah, like... He made these decisions, and it's like, yeah, business practices from five years ago still affect today. Not right. Business decisions are not instantaneous unless you decide to just go mad and set a building on fire. Right. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. So, Sydney, what... Yeah, I was going to ask you a couple questions to get at the ball rolling. Yeah. For one, what, like, what has your relationship with the film been up to? Like, how did you get introduced to this film? Because I believe this was announced in that, like panel event that we watched together during yeah. the pandemic yeah aside from that this is I gotta tell you like this is a film that I the only reason that I haven't seen it until now is because I have routinely forgotten about it mm -hmm. like it's things really do need to be shoved in front of my face for me to actually like have a chance at engaging with them I yes. don't have the object permanence built into my brain um, to just come back to things like this naturally. So um, the only times I would ever think about this movie is, is in the couple times here and there that you would mention it. Um, otherwise, like, if we didn't need another episode topic for this month, like, I, I probably still would not have come back to it. Um, because even, 
even after this film's release, I don't... This one just wasn't was not automatically grandfathered into the Pixar pantheon, you know, like it it's it I I don't think it was sort of like roped like there there's like a a post release marketing campaign that happens for all of these films, and like I don't think that this one has gotten that sort of like Disney treatment post release that sort of right. enforces its its position in the same way that I think, like, Turning Red had. Um, yes, that was something I wanted to bring up. Yeah. So, you know, I won't even blame the fact that, you know, the, the whole streaming thing. I don't even, I don't even think that's relevant. Um, but it was just a forgotten film for me. And now that I've seen it, I actually totally understand why. Um because I think this is a complete departure from Luca. I don't think this film represents any, or, or, or I should say, I don't think this film matches any other feature-length film that Pixar has made. And we can get into right. why that is. Right. One of the key words I would use is, like, understated. Honestly, one of its biggest disadvantages is coming around the same time as Turning Red, which also got the raw oh, end yeah. streaming deal. And, right. like, all, and whereas you you can tell Disney's like, well, Luca was good. You mm-hmm. can, they look at Turning Red and they're like, we fucked up, like, almost immediately, you could tell they had this energy of, we fucked up not releasing this in theaters. Because right. the amount of post-release push to this day, like, people keep yeah. posting images, like, apparently... Like an antidotal story I heard was like so there was like a like a fr- like a family screening of it like some family like rented out a theater and screened it and it was like a full house and someone was like God this could have been for weeks right um, the fact that there is so much merch people just posting pictures of entire walls of red pandas I think the mm-hmm. fact that the red panda is just an instantly marketable like little critter Animal? really helps yeah yeah agreed and the fact that it's you know. And the fact that it, I believe it ended up being the one of the two, well, it got more critical praise and more awards praise, I think Mm -hmm. just gave it an advantage. Um, And, like, like, Turning Red in a lot of ways feels like a system, like, culture change for Pixar 2, but it's more overstated. It's a little louder and, like, more bombastic in its presentation, whereas Luca is, like, kind of one of the great vibe films. Like, and Agreed. Pixar really doesn't, and, like, what is the closest other thing Pixar has to a vibe film? Incredibles? But that's still very plot-heavy. It doesn't. Like... So, you know, in my, in my notes here, because I immediately started taking notes when I was watching this, I was like, this film f- feels like, you can either say it one of two ways, it's either a really long Pixar short or a collection of Pixar shorts. <laughs> I think you used the phrase student film, and I do think this era of Pixar in particular is that in the best of ways. Well, yes. So this, so, yeah, I, I immediately clocked this as I'm like, this feels like a, an expensive student film. And I, I'll tell you why. Here's what I have in my notes. Like, mm-hmm. here, here's the first element of that. Um, minimal exposition up front. Mm-hmm. 
this film does such little world building. It's the first thing that makes it almost like the inverse or the opposite of what Pixar's usual formula is, mm-hmm. where it's like, this is Andy's room. Welcome. Here's how it works here. Here's everything you need to understand about Andy's room. And here then, are the politics that allow it to function. Here's yeah. Here's here's the politics. Here's here's the infrastructure of Andy's room, and these are the citizens of Andy's room. Watch them go. That's that is how Pixar. That's that's kind of their bread and butter. That's kind of their goal. That's their kind of what they've gotten branded as for good or for ill. Right. Is that like they and we talked about this with Zootopia, like that they that their thing is like creating these really cool immersive universes and that's sort of the appeal of the whole movie really and then we kind of follow some characters through a narrative and this one does the bare minimum of explaining things it doesn't even explain because it's like it's sort of a concept that the audience already kind of understands we've got some fishermen on a boat and they're afraid of like a sea monster that's all like there's there's even they don't even spend time with those two fishermen like really explaining the lore of that. They're just like, yeah, we don't fuck with the sea monsters. We're afraid of them. And that's yeah, all you need to town, understand. This town has a like culture of fighting right. sea monsters. That's just their vibe. They don't like That's them. what they Get do here. here. That's all you need to understand. The statue and, in the town center is someone fighting like a hydra. Right, right. And then in the very next scene, like, we just open up in a day in the life of our title character, Luca, and we're just following him around. And mm. we're gradually being introduced to, to little things here and there, but, like, we're not being introduced to the ocean as an idea, or, like, even even really, like, a... A, a town or like a, a country of, of these sea folk like we're not right. even like we're not being introduced to anything outside of Luca and his family members and so everything feels very intimate all the way through everything is very intimate and, and because of that like close small intimacy from the jump all of the emotions are 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 heightened or there's just like a lot more room for emotional depth when things like you you know why else this feels like a short to me that like I'm just mm-hmm. coming to now this feels like a Pixar short because the inciting event happens almost instantly right like, like they don't waste time <laughs> yeah this is like this is the most like in terms of like length this is the cleanest like ninety minute film Pixar's right. ever done where it's like we are from the get go. We are telling you just what you need to know. Yeah. Giving you just enough that your brain can fill in the gaps. Let's Here we go. go. Right. No time to waste. And it's such a, it was such a relief for me. Like, we, you know, we don't even, he, he doesn't go through a journey of like, I'm yearning to go to the surface. He just kind of plays around with the idea. And in the very next scene, he gets tossed right. up. Yeah, oh, and like people talk about, people talk about Pixar and like how they have like the room of creatives who like, pick apart the narrative like every narrative they do to like the bone to make sure it's 100 percent perfect like Mm. it's got everything it needs i think this is like compared to other films this is a better example because it's like there is no fat on this thing no it's like it understands that like 
even a young audience doesn't need to have its hand held as much as you think. Because it's like, all you need to do is have him have the one line where Fish is wandering off, where he's like, yeah, your friend who wandered off, he's probably either dead or seeing having the fun. world. And having fun. Yeah. yeah. Having a great time. Anyway, And then you just yeah. have, like, one or two little, like, dreamy vignettes of him, like, trying to get out of the water or him on a Vespa. And it's like, a kid can look at that and oh. immediately understand it. I would say this, yeah, the, compared to Turning Red, this skews younger in a very good way where mm -hmm. it's, like, visuals and, like, curtness can kind of carry you. And, exactly. you know, the... The sort of, like, world-building thing interests me, because you know what it reminds me of? I hate to just compare this to another Pixar film centered around water, but Finding Nemo, mm. like, Finding Nemo, because it's this odyssey, we get all of these little different corners of the fish world. You know, right. we see all these different... We see, like, the turtles and their elaborate highway system. We see right. these, like... We got the mafia. Jellyfish. Yeah, we have the shark mafia. We have, yeah. like, who live in battleships. You know, right. we have, like, these jellyfish fields that are just, like, these no-no zones. We see, like, We even have domestic different... pet fish. Yeah, like, That's fish cool. who have been forced to, like, you know, contort to, right. like, the environment of human. Um, even just, like, oh, we're just floating around, there's just this gr school of fish who just, like, communicate as a hive mind. Yeah, Who just, like, <laughs> take the shape of what they need. Right. Where it's, like, if you were to just, if the film, if Finding Nemo is just the part where he takes his kid to school, that's kind of what Luca is, where it's, like, Oh, just this simple, like, villa-esque setup where it's like, yeah, this makes sense. They mm -hmm. all kind of just hang out. You know, there's little right. incidental lines of world building, but you're like, yeah, it's just people yeah. living in town. Right, exactly. Like, I was so content to, like, you immediately pick up, like, okay, he's some kind of shepherd, and they do some kind of agricultural work relative yeah, to being like, underwater. That's enough. Yeah, there's, like, the Pixar pop culture shorthand thing of they're entering, like, a crab competition that just, like... Oh, yeah, with the Branzinos. Which, you want to yes. know something funny? There's a dish on the menu at the restaurant I work at called the Branzino. Oh, it my is God, a fish. I forgot about that. It, it is a, a sea bass dish, yeah. Um, yes, but I do love that just because it sets up Maya Rudolph as being, like, his mom and a violent competitor. Like, any opportunity right. she has to, like, focus on competition. Like, later in the movie, they'll be, they're playing soccer with a bunch of kids, and she's just, like, hip-checking them into a fountain. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, she is, then, like, like, very unhinged. Yes, in the best way. And I think it yeah. helps, because, like, like, we're kind of jumping ahead here, but, like, a big part of the plot is centered around the idea that sea monsters, if they get dry enough, can kind of just change into humans and breathe on land. Like, they can just yeah. appear to be human. Um, and I love that Luca and Alberto just kind of look like regular kids, like cartoony kids, like stylized sure. kids. Sure. They're still, like... But they're just like, like you well, look at little them, boys. Yeah. You look at them compared to Julieta, and it's like, oh, yeah, they all fit in. Whereas right. Maya Rudolph and his dad look, look like fish. weird. You're like, what the fuck? If they you saw look that like person, fish. you'd be like, the fuck is up with that person? Yeah, they kind of look like she, fish, for real. Did she get in a car accident or something? Is this the best <laughs> the dad doctors could do? The dad looks insane. Yeah. Like, did she have a situation where they're taking the bandages off her face, and it's like, the doctor did everything she could. Give me a mirror. Give me a mirror. <laughs> and then she, like, breaks it. Well, I was just going to say, and the changing is a perfect example of that, like, curtness. Because it's, like, uh -huh. it happens twice, like, in sort of, like, big dramatic moments. But, like, the first time it happens, instead of drawing it out, he just gets yanked onto land. And then mm -hmm. suddenly watches his body change. So right. then when we have him do it on by choice, it's, like, a much cleaner, like, yeah. less, like, kind of moment if that <laughs> yeah so that makes perfect so that that's that's a reference i would have used yeah um 
I wanted to talk about, you know, the story, um, and we can get further into, like, the specifics of the story if we want, but, like, why does Disney tell so many stories? Because it's, like, okay, here's what I, here's, here's what I'm really trying to say. If we want to have a conversation about diversity, if we want to have a conversation about, like, representation of people that are not white or cisgender, hetero, sexual, what have you, and and, and all of the representation that, that surrounds that, like, for a company that it's taken, like, truly, like, pulling teeth to, like, siphon even a little bit of that representation out, why do they continue to tell so many stories about, like, oh, don't go over there because they won't understand you and they hate the kind of thing that you are? Like, why why do they tell this story over and over again but well, don't actually tell the story in literal terms? Well, we could get into... I'm down to get into that LGBTQ discussion right now then because I think it stems partially... I mean, it's kind of a lot of different angles, but one is, you know, the Disney company did sort of grew in the age of the Hayes Code. Originally, films could kind of be anything, and then the Hayes Code as this, like, you know, bastion of, you know, self-proclaimed crusader for, like, moral clarity in arts was, Mm -hmm. like, it's similar to the Comics Code Authority. It's this idea of, like, during the Prohibition era and the Great Depression and the rising of fascism, um, you know... uh, you know, this group uh, basically anointed themselves, like, we need to protect our children from these, you know, deviant thoughts, and I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, and I don't know, I, I, Carter doesn't need to get political right here right now, but, like, yeah, mm-hmm. basically, so, like, you couldn't just outwardly have the sort of representation you had before of, like, clearly gay characters, clearly sort of, like, unconventional characters or even characters of color because the hates code explicitly banned interracial marriages Mm. and sort of a way to work around that was what well one either do biblical films because then you could be like well that's just what the bible says you don't want to go against the bible do you um or you would put have those characters be depicted as villains because that was the one way the hates code would let you get around it so a lot of villains end up Ah. being sort of so a lot of villains end up being kind of queer coded Mm that having sort of like you know loving you know being single um you know uh being older being uh, foppish for lack of a better word yeah yeah a feminine that's a better word for it yeah that's how you and like yeah that's a part of where it starts because like you know you can't have your protagonists be gay so you have to have like characters on the periphery be gay Mm -hmm. and then you know it becomes a little more fluid once you get to some like it hot because some like it hot the hates code was explicitly against and they just went fuck it, we're releasing it anyway. We're making it, And then it ends up becoming one of the most financially successful films of all time adjusted for inflation. Right. So then it's like, oh, everyone's like, oh, we could have just done this the whole time. Yeah. And so that's how you get, like, a lot of that with, like, Disney villains, and that's why the Disney villains all kind of become, like, sort of camp LGBTQ, like, icons, for lack of a better word. Yeah. But, But also, like, I think that energy ties into sort of why the protagonists go through stories like that because it's like well we're still in this mindset we still believe we're still stuck in this middle america mindset where we can't just explicitly talk about these things but like a lot of the emotional struggles that lgbtq people feel of like being outsiders in a world where we nominally look like everyone else 
mm-hmm. like wanting to see this bigger world to see what everything is and figure out who we are. It's like those are just close enough to emotions and experiences a cis or hetero person has, mm-hmm. but like hazy enough that you can kind of have your feet in both pools, for lack right. of a better word, without getting oh, the sea puns. Today. The puns without, are right in themselves, baby. Um, flipping them like flounder. Um, there you go. Without getting in trouble from some like imagined moral police. I see. Um, yeah, yeah and sense. like that's that's kind of what it is. And like, yes, you know, Luca is not inherently an LGBTQ movie, though. There's like a sort of like you know, there's a you can see an undertone of romance in Luca and Alberto's relationship. That's not text. That is more subtext. Right. But at the same time, it's like. Yeah, but that subtext is what a lot of, you know, kid LGBT kids, Q kids who love Disney have been going on for years. Mm. Have been going on with both protagonists and antagonists. Like so much of the text of this film works for them because it's, you know, one of the final lines is, um, you know, Luca's grandmother as his mother is realizing maybe they should let him live in the surface world. Like, you yeah. know, there's a lot of people who are simply just never going to accept him. But he seems to be pretty good at finding the ones who will. Right. Um, and that's like a topic we can expand on as we reach our conclusion. But um, yeah, it's, I will say, like, in terms of like the vibes of this movie, for me, like, I love that the, I love that the surface world also doesn't have that many rules because like, and maybe it's I'm spoiled because I got to go to Italy for a while, but like, this is one of the, like, just the entire town is so perfectly flushed out. It's flushed out mm. just enough that you're like, yeah, I can see why some fish people are like, I absolutely have to be up here. This rules. Right. Like, this place in the summertime. Oh, and yeah. Just, like, you know, the, like, jazzy Italian music combined with, like, yeah. the, you know, a perpetually blue sky. Just amazing. Right. And this kind of being placed in, what, like, the 30s, early 40s? Like, the 50s. I believe there's an actual what year? There's they no way say it's the fifties. Like it's got to be like nineteen fifty nine, allegedly. That's what oh. they say they're aiming for. Was was do you think like post Mussolini they were kind of like behind? Um, I mean, I'm not as versed. I'm way more versed in World War One than World War Two, so I don't really want to comment too much. But that would make sense. Like, again, I know that like East that like stood to to and stereotypically east germany was like a decade behind in terms of like technology fashion so i would assume yes because i i would have placed this just based on design and if so bravo to pixar um for like catching this detail but yeah like a communist country like italy would have been or like under a dictatorship yeah, design-wise, this is all... Like, even their technology is, like, 1930s, maybe 40s. So it makes sense that they would be, like, in the late 50s and still be and dressing I, like this and looking like this. And and I do think that ties into your, like, comment about it being, like, a sort of more student film. Like, this era of Pixar, like, it's taking the sort of attention to detail and the visual fidelity and polish that has defined Pixar films and putting it to specific times and regions and cultures and it pays off like gangbusters because this Mm -hmm. is such a well-observed vision of like you know Italy 
like soul again i think it's one of the best new york films ever made in terms of just like depicting mm. the rhythm and heart of a city and even and like turning red we talked about it it's like so well observed about like how the 2000s this, like yeah yeah immigrant community like these this immigrant community would live in like pre-2001 canada yeah um what are some of your other notes you had well um let's talk i i definitely want to get more into design um Mm. because you know as i said a couple minutes ago about like this feeling like it's either one long pixar short or it's a collection of pixar shorts Mm-hmm. And, like, I really love the way that this film leans into these dream vignettes. And, yes. you know, when I was watching this, I was like, if this is not what this technology is intended for, I don't know what is. Right. This, this film about. feels like this is, like, the purest use of CGI technology. Right, and it's something we've talked about of, like, there are advantages to using CGI in terms of creating certain spectacles and certain, like, mm-hmm. huge images that would just be really, really hard to do in drawing. And I mm-hmm. do think this film captures a lot of it, despite being kind of weird, very understated in a lot of its, like, actions. Yeah. Like, it makes it makes a bike ride seem like the most dramatic, like, a bike chase be the most dramatic thing ever caught on film. It allows you to do these dream segments where it just keeps expanding... When I originally saw it, I wasn't the hugest fan of the dream sequences. I was like, these are nice, but it's taking away from, like, the little character moments. But I do have grown to love them because of how they just keep escalating. Like, I love that the first one starts with him literally just trying to break, like, a film on water. Then we get to him driving a Vespa. And then we get Mm -hmm. to him literally soaring through the cosmos. Like, I love them as a visual metaphor for how Luke is growing and his worldview is getting bigger. And it's just not going to be able to be contained. Well, you know, for me, it's like... By that same token of, like, what good is CGI if we're not doing stuff like this, I have to think of, like, for, for me, the, the function of these dream sequences is, like, what is the point of being a human child without this kind of I- imagination? <laughs> that's sort of, of, of what this is. Because right. it's, like, he yeah, doesn't, Luca just doesn't live in the ocean. He lives, like, under the control of and protection of his family. It's not just that he's curious about, like, what's on the surface, but just, like, what is out there at all, anywhere. Yeah. Well, again, as I was saying, it's, like, these are very common themes. Like, you know, part of your world is one of the mantras of Disney for a reason. Right, Um, right. For me, what I love about the animation is, and, like, the, the Miyazaki-Pixar discussion has been around since Pixar started making movies. And I usually, like, shy... And, like, Miyazaki's come to check out Pixar. Like, you know, Lasseter and co. were big on being, like, early distributors of Ghibli films. And, like, I kind of shied away from that connection because it just feels kind of loud and obvious. And it's like, oh, they do winsome children's films with, like, deep messages. Oh, so Mia- it's go. like Miyazaki. It's like, roll your eyes. But mm-hmm. I love this is actually, but one, this one I actually do like comparing to Ghibli because like, what I love, like, I feel like it gets underrated how much of Ghibli is just like nice little domestic situations with slightly mm-hmm. heightened magic. Like, yes. you know, my neighbor Totoro is mostly just these kids living on the countryside while they wait for their mom to make a recovery in the hospital. Mm. And then they just happen to run into a forest spirit. Like, 
uh, like uh, like one of my favorite little moments from this because the character design wise the characters are very similar but also in terms of like this very like goofy slapstick tone that a lot of ghibli stuff takes again it is very funny that without spoiling what we're doing that both this film like the next two sydney's never seen are this and a ghibli film that also takes place in italy and has a lot of wacky slapstick stuff centered around a summer on the ocean right. um but one of my favorite little moments is they're like trying to make their own Vespa because they've decided Senor Vespa is like the greatest inventor of all time. The Vespa right. is. And like, again, that's why this is so well observed in terms of kid stuff. Cause it's like, yeah, when I was a kid, I saw Peter Parker on like a little motor scooter delivering pizzas. And I'm like, I want one of those. That looks so cool. Right. It's like a little, this is the coolest thing anyone's ever made. Right. As he, you know, as there's like a guy flying around on a goblin glider and someone has octopus arms made out right. of metal, but I digress. Um, but yeah, they're trying to set up this ramp, and at one point the Vespa, Alberto's on the Vespa, it breaks, and then he's just running downhill at like yeah. an accelerated speed. His legs are basically wheels, and I'm right. like, this reminds me so much of a bit from Castle of Cagliostro, where um, Lupin, who's like this master thief, is trying to set up an elaborate grapple hook, but then it falls, and as he's chasing it, he realizes he's going too fast and has to like leapfrog right. the gorge that he's trying to get across, and I'm like... I live for this sort of wacky cartoon nonsense. And there's something even more, like there's something charming about finally seeing it in CGI because we were deprived of it for so long. Where it's like, yeah, people's entire physiology is changing because they're running Mm. down a hill and they can't stop themselves. I love that the boys don't know how like anything works. I mean, that obviously like adds to the comedic element, the, the physical comedy of it. Them literally just learning how to, like, walk, or Luca lear- um, learning how to walk. But, like, I love in in that when they're trying to ride this, like, Vespa, if we can even call it that, they just decide that, it, like, one of them can just hold the ramp. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> like, they don't understand how anything, how anything works. And um, I just love that there are no consequences to that in this. Right. Yeah, that's what I love. Like, again, it's like, and that's the advantage of doing this kind of story in, like, a cartoon form. Because it's like, could this be live action? Absolutely. There's not that much, like, other than, like, the handful of, like, parts that are just fully underwater, there's not that much of this that, you know, it, like, and it, like, if Federico Fellini decided he wanted to make a kid's film, he could have done this. Like, yeah. you know, the prosthetics for the fish parts would have been a pain in the ass. But other than that, like right but it's more fun because like adding a cartoon elements like oh there are no physical consequences to any of this like they Mm -hmm. don't understand how gravity works he can just jump off of like a little watchtower and land in a tree and then hit the ground he's not gonna break a bone he's fine right that's probably one of my favorite lines the uh take me gravity or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever they say that's one of my favorites yes well that was um and that's something i wanted to talk about um for me the music um i think i mentioned this on an episode we were talking about the segment when they finally decide we're going to town, we're going to find Senor Vespa and ask him for one of these incredible devices. Um, mm-hmm. The track that plays during that is called Take Me Gravity as they're like swimming to oh. town and they keep diving in and out of the water and changing back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, so much of what carries this film, and again, it's the embodiment of a vibe film, is the music. Um, it's beautiful. It's Dan- yes, it's um, Dan Romer, who I've mentioned a couple times before. He did Beast of the Southern Wild... Um, he did a very famous NYU student film that I don't think they ever built off of. He, he's like, he's done a handful of things. He doesn't do as much as other people do, but um, 
Yeah, he's most, I believe, no, he didn't end up winning the Oscar for Beasts of the Southern Wild, I don't think. But he, um, like, he is the embodiment of, like, we are about to have the most extraordinary adventure. Um, like, when Luca dives into the water and just a timpani drum just gets slammed, and then, like, the timpanis just keep rolling as they're moving through. And finally, when Luca does this huge jump and the French horns come in and do this, like, do, 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 like, sort of the theme of the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, there's never going to be a more magical moment of this on film. Right. And, like, that's kind of, like, God, that's kind of what I look for in films. I want mm-hmm. just one or two moments where I'm like, this is obviously the most magical sin that's ever been. Right. Even though I'll probably say that for a movie, like, for the next 10 yeah. weeks from now. Exactly. Because if it doesn't make you feel like a kid, what's the point of any of this? Right. I guess, like, for me, um, I guess for me, it's like, how much, like, we're talking about the vibe, we're talking about the energy and stuff. Like, how much do you, how much did you get into the story in terms of, like, the actual goal of getting the Vespa? Like, I like the segment that becomes this little drama of, like, them trying to take down the school bully. But I was curious, like, where it gets a little more understated and more just, like, domestic. How are you feeling about that segment? Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. Like, this will definitely require a couple more watches from me, I think. On on first, upon my first watch, which truly was, like, yesterday that I saw this for the first time, it was more about just, like, my senses taking this in, and I, f- mm. I felt like I was resonating more with the small vignettes. I just wanted to see them, like, trying new things, trying to, like, mm-hmm. eat at a table out of bowls for the first time. Um, like being triggered by seeing gluten on screen. <laughs> um, I'll give you credit for committing as much as you have. I, w- I, w- I, w- I didn't think that I would feel like a visceral reaction to seeing a plate of pasta, a CGI plate of pasta on screen. But, like, it, it did something uh, to me. Starch, they're not gluten. It, it, it did something to me, really did. Anyway, um, I don't, like... I honestly, it wasn't until the end of the film, um, it wasn't until the third act when sort of he's kind of like on the wire with, with his parents being on the surface and like, and the, the actual final race that I felt like I was kind of like, uh, really resonating with, with this through line up until that point, I was kind of committing to the vibe. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it is interesting you say that, because, like, I don't disagree. Like, it very much is a vibe movie. It is, like, yeah. I hate to keep just using the same term over and over again, but, like, it it really does get carried by the vignettes until the very end when, like, yeah, suddenly the stakes become very real, mm-hmm. um, particularly. And it's, like, that's one of the parts that gets me choked up when they're actually doing this, like, you know, they're doing this race. And it still has a very, like even though we just had Alberto revealed that his dad just abandoned him. Right. Like, he still has a very happy-go-lucky energy as we're going through this race. And yeah. then the minute we get to, like, the part where it starts raining, it goes from zero oh. to 100 so fast. The line where, like, Luca's still... He's safe, you know? He gets to still, like, sort of mask himself in the community. Mm-hmm. And Alberto's been outed because he lost his umbrella. And mm-hmm. he just goes, stay there. You're still okay. I'm just like... Oh, 
oh, this movie, oh, this is like a movie. Okay. Right. This All right. is a this real is, story. Oh, this is well, working. See, for me, that part was earlier, um, or I think, I think it's earlier, when, when Luca like turns on, no, it's, it has to be later. When Luca turns on Alberto. Yeah. And because Alberto's gotten jealous, and to prove a point, he steps into the water and reveals himself. To, right, like, to and then when other people start showing up, suddenly Luca doesn't know him anymore, and is like, "Ah, scary monster." That that for me was the part where I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute! You didn't tell me this was a film. Like, we've got a story." That blew me yeah. away. That moment, I was like, "No way!" Like, I was not expecting that kind of depth. <laughs> Yeah, and it works because it's, like, gotten you into such a, like, breezy energy. It's had this sort of, like, stand-by-me energy of, like, yeah. oh, we're just going on a little adventure, we're just having fun, mm-hmm. that you realize, like, wait a minute, no, I care about what happens now. Right. And it, like, it's scary how effective it just eases you into all of this, only to, like, pull the rug out from you like that. Exactly. Where it's like, no, this matters now. This isn't just a fun little adventure. I need to see it work out for these kids. Exactly, right. Um, it also helps, like, for me, um, uh, Massimo, uh, Julia's father, um, is oh. all-time character for me now. Um, one, really? just design. Again, I oh, love yeah. myself a guy who's just a square. A rectangle? A big square. Yeah. I um, do love this character. You can maybe sometimes see his eyes, not really. Yes. Um, I love that he eventually gets won over by Alberto's, like, like dumb confidence again both like luca and drax have or luca and alberto have that drax mantis energy of like they're so confident that they're correct and they know everything right Right. but the difference is like you know luca reads a book and it's like wait a minute we don't know everything Um, yeah we actually know nothing (laughs) hell that's like that is when i really start getting invested when uh massimo realizes that alberto's not there and luca's like oh he left and without saying a word just puts on his jacket we're going yeah, he's like, do you have any idea where he went? And I'm just like... Wow. Again, like... Again, we keep calling this a vibe movie, but it's actually a very strong plot movie. It's just very mm-hmm. sneaky and, like... like Sort of understated. With its plot. Yeah. yeah, it's understated. And again, which I think just... Like, it hurts it for its cultural perception, but it works for anyone who's seen it because they're like, oh, this is a masterpiece. This is great. Right, yeah. Um, what, other, what other things really struck you on your first viewing? Um, I mean, I feel like it, like, after sort of the initial, like, after kind of getting through the first act, I felt like I was just submerged at that point, and is that another water reference? Submerged? Yeah. I it's, it's gonna it. happen. <laughs> um, I don't know. Other than the, the design, you know, like, I thought this was, you're right, it's like, you, uh, you let your guard down with this film for Acts 1 and Acts 2, and then when they really sort of, like, kick the plot into this different emotional gear, it really is striking at the end. Um, And so, like, you messaged me at some point to say, like, oh, like, I can't help but cry at the very end. And I was like, oh, gee, I can't wait Mm. to see what he's talking about. Um, Um. Yeah, like, I kind of wish I didn't say that, because, like, I think why I like this film so much is it feels, like, this was, like, Soul, despite its differences compared to other Pixar, 
it just it is a version of Pixar that's more adult and contemporary. It still has a lot of the similar Pixar sort of like staples, particularly like the oh, there's the section that's gonna make the adults cry. Right. And <laughs> I think and like so that's why I regret saying like, oh, I can't get through this part without crying because I feel like I set your expectations up for that. Because mm. like again, that's the stereotype of Pixar. It has like the emotionally gut-wrenching part that makes the adults cry. Andy's going to play with the toys one last time before he goes away forever. So long, partner. Right. You know, uh, Carl is going to lose his wife in an emotionally jarring moment. Right. They can't have like children, and she passes away first, and yeah. Tragically. Um, <laughs> Route 66 is going to be largely abandoned to other bigger infrastructure projects, resulting in oh, a lot of small towns Remember the glory the days? Vine. Yeah. Um... <laughs> this is like the this is the anti cars in terms of yes again when the vibes work you don't think about rules right like, that's the difference between good rules movies and bad rules movies right where like if you doesn't make emotional sense all you can think about is the logical sense right but anyway like I love that the emotional moment the emotional like crux of this film is so understated it is just two people who almost certainly will get to see each other again mm-hmm. saying goodbye for, like. It is two kids who got to spend the summer together just saying goodbye, and there's something so, yeah. like... After they got comfortable, is... after they just got adjusted After they the got a Vespa. Time. After they got a Vespa, which is all they wanted, and all they wanted to do was ride it, and they immediately sell it. <laughs> right? It is, like... <laughs> a grit, a dumb Family Guy joke I've always liked is they're doing Stephen King parodies, and one of them is Stand by Me, and it is oh yes, this I is see. a story about kids who go looking for a dead body, but instead they find themselves, but also a <laughs> dead body. And this was a story about two little sea monster kids looking for a Vespa, and they right. find a, themselves, and for and just a, a minute, a Vespa, a really and, awful one. Yeah. The the one they made was just as good. I I do love that. I love that it's like, again, I love the, how weirdly realistic this movie is. It's like, how much prize money do you think these fucking kids are going to get from a bicycle race? Right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like the fact that it is, I don't know, the fact that it's just this understated, very human moment. It's not just this big, bombastic, emotional thing. It's just like these two people who kind of have found themselves through each other Mm -hmm. having to say goodbye for now. And knowing that when they yeah. reunite, they're going to be different people. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, having to say goodbye for now, one insisting on sending the other off in, yeah. in spite of, you know, against his own interest. Um, but but maybe realize- it is about exactly what the grandmother said about being able to find the right people anyway. Yeah. Being good at that found- no matter where you go. Yeah. Alberto has a father figure now. It'll be okay, because this wasn't just about him and Luca being friends. It was about getting off the island. Oh, there it goes. Yeah. Yep. All right. Wait until the end end of the episode, but they got me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I'm just like, oh, this is so understated or the most stated anything has ever been ever. (laughs) Yeah, it's either understated or it's just written in Times New Roman. Yes. Um, Yeah. It, like... I'm so happy that you finally got to see this film because me I do too. think like it, for, again, for me, it is just like, I want, 
I feel like Pixar has a target on its back because it made its reputation being the adult animation studio, being mm. like the big dramatic animation studio who does the big puts their big boy pants on and tells everyone else how to do storytelling. Right. And I'm like, there's something kind of exhausting to that. There's something kind of unfun to that like expectation because like animation and it's kind of what we were talking about last week with the whole animation is cinema crowd. Like animation is a lot of things. And this is cinema, but it's also, like, it's simple, and it's clean, and it's, for children and adults, it's, like, I don't know, it's one of the best, like, sort of kid stories I've seen on film in such a long time, and yet I'm, like, I still get a lot out of it. Yeah, and, you know, as we kind of, like, round the end of this discussion here, like, is it just me, or... Or was, yeah, well, well, we kind of started the discussion with this too, but talking about how quiet the impact of this film is, is that, is that intentional? Why, why does a film like this go so, like, remain so under the radar to this day? Well, like I said, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's the disadvantage of, you know, turning red being, having oh. the bombastic confidence Why did of they a do teenage that? girl. Well, it's just a release schedule. And, like, if they had both come out in theaters, I think it wouldn't have been as much of a problem. Yeah, But, that's like, true. when you're playing, as you said, it's hard to have object permanence with streaming. And if something's not in your yeah. face, it's just not going to be there. And Disney's done a good job of keeping, turn better, well, a better job of keeping turning red in people's faces. Partially because they realized they fumbled an enormous bag of merchandise and CDs oh, and yeah. everything with right. that movie. Whereas this is another, like, personal, like, heartfelt, like, story yeah. someone's telling about their life growing up. Mm-hmm. But it's just different. And, again, I think, like, for me, the minute I knew Turning Red was going to be good is the minute I saw Luca. Because I'm like, okay, Pixar can change. They can yeah. tell smaller stories. They can tell more personal stories. And they can tell more specific stories. And... I'm happy to have these two be kind of like twin brother sister right as like these like oh this is the moment Pixar like figured out what they needed to be in post 2020. Yeah, you know it's so interesting that you mentioned that like I didn't even think about it as boy film girl film. And mm -hmm. that like I like I sort of on the surface understood that there was more to be um marketed or I like licensed out of turning red and maybe traditionally with disney with anything that falls under disney like girl stuff has always been easier for them to market or or license I mean, out you know it is funny because so much of why they bought pixar is because pixar was like the boys animation it was like yeah that's true oh we with make Toy the Story. we make yeah they and make Bugs men's Land. movies about men Bugs. They do movies about toys and cars and bugs. And bugs. And, yeah, specifically <laughs> bugs pretending to recreate cur like superheroes. Yeah, and, and monsters. And robots. Yeah. Um, which is hilarious because that's their one, that and Elemental are the only like romantic films they've ever done. Right. I don't really talk about <laughs> for uh, reasons that I feel like are self evident after the first 10 minutes. Right. Um, but yeah, it's. Like, that is kind of an interesting way to put it. I didn't even think about it until I said it out loud when I called yeah. them brother and sister. I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's like, I do think that's a part of it. And, like, I kind of, 
And that's why I'm also, like, one, because I love Turning Red, but it's also, like, nice to see Pixar, like, really have a more feminine leading story pushed while the, like, more boy story just gets to be a little, like, more understated. Mm. I just, I just wish this had a chance to go to theaters. I wish both of them had a chance to go yeah. to theaters. Because I do think this, this would be gorgeous. Theaters, yeah, one, it would look gorgeous, and, like, the music would be even more sweeping on a surround sound. Right. But I also think, like, you know... Both of them would have their days in the sun if they were both on theaters. Like, it's not a competition. They're not fighting each other. They are They are two films that deserve to be seen together because they very much have similar bones and similar soul to them. Right. Um, yeah, and, like, again, for me, we talked, we talked a little bit about the Pride stuff, and it is interesting because I did make a point to check the um, Disney Plus Pride collection, and a surprising amount of it is documentaries and Nat Geo stuff, um, narrative-wise. Yeah, which I think says a lot. That's, like, the first category. Ew. Um, in terms of, like, narrative stuff, it's Love, Victor, which, you know, okay. Glee, which I say fucking shame on No, um, yeah. And High School Musical. And then, like, it's high, you know, High School Musical of, is in the Pride collection? Or High School Musical, the music, or the series. Oh, oh the my thing god. That makes you want to have a brain I was aneurysm. about to write an email. Yeah, I can, yeah. I can Extra- accept. The audacity what, listen, if they pulled that card. Right? Okay, listen. When we, I know we did, a, we did um, a bunch of High School Musical stuff last month, but like, I don't know about you, Carter, but that High School Musical, the musical, the series is none of my business. We left it out for, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't, we ran out of weeks. It was was on purpose. (laughs) Like, we don't, no no comment. No comment here. Yeah, and I guess the point I want to make with this is, now that we've gotten our vitriol out for that. (laughs) Yes. It's like, I just noticed how bare bones so much of this is. And I will give them credit, because they do have, like, they feature, um, they feature Amphibia and Owl House. And, like, Gravity Falls, which they all kind of fell under the same category as series who butted heads with the studio, like, executives a lot because they wanted to have more representation. Famously, Alex Hirsch, like, I think, I'm not going to accuse him of drinking as he typed it, but he famously got very aggro during Pride Month one year because he's, because apparently Disney expected him to cut certain things out. And, I don't know, it's messy because I do think Disney's trying to be better. I do think they've realized, like, no, we can't half-ass it anymore. Like, mm-hmm. having LeFou touch a man's hand and go, oh, isn't enough anymore. And I do think, sort of, like... It wasn't enough advi- back then, but... It wasn't enough back then. It yeah. It candid. Um, and I do think, like, the fact that Ike Perlmutter got pushed out suggests that they used the layoffs as an excuse to sort of push out a lot of the executives who... Mm were using Turkey and China as an excuse not to do LGBTQ stories. And as Dana Terrace said about Owl House, it really was just one guy, one individual person who decided they didn't want to like this. The reason why we didn't get that Squirrel Girl series is because one executive decided they didn't want to, like, be producing the gay show and Mm. axed it. Like, and I like to think those people are slowly getting pushed out. And I guess to bring it back to Luca, I guess one of the reasons why I think Luca appeals to a lot of people is, like, yeah, we don't... Ha- it's tough because we don't have a lot of options on this front for Disney. Mm-hmm. But people want to love Disney. Disney 
Yeah. Its core message is it's for everyone, and that includes people who are LGBTQ. So, like, seeing these stories that are, like, very metaphorical and have metaphors that can graft onto an LGBTQ LGBTQ experience, I get that completely. And I think that's something Disney should lean into, even if it doesn't end up appearing on the, you know, Pride tab on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, that's a really good point. And honestly... You know, I guess now that we've we've really talked it out and laid out all this information, I guess my confusion from the from a quote unquote outsider's point of view is like, okay, this is this is actually a conversation about like it's not about the representation, it's about like the marketing of things like Pride Month. <laughs> it's sort of that like administrative organization of of those ideas, not the ideas themselves that are, like, that are not, that are not enough. Maybe they, perhaps they are for now. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. I just look forward to, you know, I just look forward to a Disney where, and, like, we're, I like to think we're getting there because, you know. Yeah. I think Strange World was, like, a good sign. I think there's yes. stuff in Elemental that's a good sign. Like, was I hope Strange World tax- in the El- was Strange World in like the Pride Month tab? No, which is very frustrating. <gasps> and uh, wait, wait, let me double check. Oh no, it is. It was under Black okay, good. TQ plus. I was about to be like, like okay. these amateurs, these fraudsters. Yes, <laughs> if it wasn't, we act. The, we would have to keep this episode we going for another twenty minutes and just yeah. talk about that. Right. Um. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know. I like to think that, you know, I like to, I I just hope there's a future in Disney where it is not just merchandising and Mm -hmm. Hollywood Reporter articles. And, you know, while there's still something good to get out of children's films that are metaphorical, I also want there to be opportunities for LGBT stories to be told not in the metaphors of, like, being an outside sea creature. Right, yes. We want there to just be plain old stories about about LGBTQ members portrayed by LGBTQ people in the industry who need jobs. Yes. Um, you know, we don't need more of the discourse that was around Princess and the Frog and Soul of like, mm-hmm. oh, the person of color gets turned into a thingy. To something else. Yeah. Yeah, none of yeah. that, please. I will say we will probably do Soul someday. I th- I hope I we do. S- you don't know the twist, right? I haven't seen it. Oh boy, that one's going to be an interesting conversation. Yeah, well, we'll have to we'll, we'll have to do that one for sure. Um, but yeah, I like we said, we hope you all had a happy Pride Month. We love all of you. We love um, you very much. Yeah. Thank you for being courageous in a time when a lot of very important people aren't. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, whatever we can do to support you, you know, we got your back. Amen. And until we're back on the Italian Riviera for another summer, <laughs> I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. Have a magical day. You know what I forgot to mention? My favorite part of this movie, what, what's the girl's name again? I can't remember. Uh, Julieta. Yes, um, all of her catchphrases are like she just names a random cheese, cheese. where she's like, Santa mozzarella. Like, I, I, it's, the most, it's different. You know what? Every time. I kind of do. 
again, as as someone who loves like great mouse attack, who loves like one dumb puns, one <laughs> dumb food puns, three dumb like if it's something a cartoon mouse would say, yeah, I love it, and I'm like, yes, you get it, Julieta. You're yeah. a real one. You're a real ally here. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, and until Sydney does something <laughs> that makes me say, uh, great Gorgonzola. Santa Gorgonzola. Yeah. <laughs> Have a magical day. <laughs> nice. The Disney Desk is brought to you by Carter and Sydney. Follow us on Twitter at Disney Desk for the latest updates about the show. Want more of the most magical podcast on earth? The Disney Desk is now on Patreon. For exclusive weekly bonus content from us, go to patreon.com slash Disney Desk and become a patron for as little as $3 a month. Thank you.